On today's episode of Scale Up Marketing, I talked to Eric Schur, the former CMO of Carbon Black and one of the best marketers to come out of the Boston tech ecosystem. I was once told by a former boss of mine that Eric was the best product marketer that he'd ever worked with, and I think you'll learn why in this episode. We talk about the importance of great product marketing, the need for product marketers to lead the go-to-market as CMOs of their business, and how to make the sales and marketing relationship really work. Hey, Eric, how are you? Morning, Tom. I'm great. How are you doing? I'm fantastic looking out the first snowy day of uh, what I hope to be a snowy winter here in the Boston area. (laughs) Well, you can have it. I'm more of a sunbird guy, so good for you, but I'll be heading to the sun pretty soon. Thanks for joining me today for my second episode. Really appreciate it. Just to go ahead and and, uh, I'd love to to, for you to talk a little bit about your background. Well, I've always been in high-tech software marketing, um, sometimes a little bit in sales and also in product management, but the emphasis has been on marketing. I was fortunate enough to be part of a lot of really successful companies, including uh, uh, SQA, Rational, I was at IBM for a bit, uh, Gomez, um, Carbon Black, uh, took uh, one or two companies public, got acquired two or three times, did a lot of acquisitions, uh, had a lot of fun over quite a few years of high-tech software marketing. That's it? That's all you accomplished? That's all you've done? <laughs> <laughs> I actually, my first job out of college was in QA. So I was a computer science major. And I I used SQA products back in the day, like macros and, and testing and regression tests and all that. So, Wow. You were one of those customers that didn't pay their bills, I think. Probably. Probably. <laughs> and you spent a, a lot of time at Rational. I think the most interesting part of Rational is how it ultimately spawned Netflix, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, Rational uh, bought Pure Atria, and some of the folks from Pure Atria left and, uh, you know, Reed Hastings, and most notably, and a few other guys went over to do Netflix. And, um, boy, that's a, obviously a runaway success. Yeah, I don't know how you go from software development to distributing DVDs over the internet, but... Uh, you have to be very know. smart. And that's, Clearly, Reed and his team were he had some really great guys there. So my, I first got to know of you. Uh, first of all, your your daughter worked for me, so that was uh, clearly one way. But the other way was I remember being, and I worked for a company called Acquia, and my uh, my boss was CEO Tom Erickson. And I think we were somewhere at dinner, and I said like, "Hey Tom, who's the best product marketer you ever worked?" It might have been marketer, by the way. I might be underselling you, but <laughs> it was. Uh, I, I remember it being best product marketer ever, and I'm like. Yeah, he'll probably say me was how I was thinking. And he said you. He's like, Eric Sure. I'm like, what? Eric Sure, the best product marketer ever. So I've always remembered that when we talked about it at dinner. And I, you know, I asked him why. And I think that's a big part of what we'll talk about today is just, you know, what makes a great product marketer. Another quote I came about was another person in the Acquia family, Tom Bogan, another uh, you know, well-known software exec. Uh, that, that spent a lot of time in the Boston area and his LinkedIn review of you. And you got a lot of great LinkedIn reviews, by the way. I don't know if you've checked that at all, but your LinkedIn reviews are spectacular. But Tom said... I wrote most of them, Tom. <laughs> oh, that's why. Yeah, exactly. Here, I'll write this for you. You just post it. Eric is unequivocally the one of the most talented people with whom I've ever worked. He has an uncanny ability to articulate product and positioning advantages from a customer or user perspective back into the technology. Like I want someone to write those words about me, 
but I wanted to kind of start start with that and, and what makes a great product marketer. I talked to to Dave Kellogg uh, a few days ago, another spectacularly good product marketer. And his take on it was a successful product marketer takes a complex gray world and transforms it into a simple black and white one. If you don't have role level locking, you're screwed. If you don't have semi-additive measures, you're screwed. If you don't have financial consolidation, you're screwed. If you don't have hyperbox, you're screwed. The great marketer imposes simplicity on the market. So what's your take on what makes great product marketing? Okay, it's a great question. And I think it's all about messaging and positioning. And when I think about that, I think there's three key elements to it. The first is what I'll just call a great architecture. I think we all know what that term means, but you know, product marketers need a way to dis- to understand their product and then distill all of those capabilities down into a way that makes the most important elements quickly digestible by a potential buyer. Now, oftentimes that's done through what's called a architecture which is a graphical depiction of the most important capabilities of your product in a way that people can grasp, right? A picture is a lot easier to grasp than just a bunch of words. The second thing, Tom, and I think this is the most important, which is often very overlooked, um, you need to differentiate your product from other offerings. Today's educated buyer is gonna look at all kinds of comparable offerings that are similar to your products. And then for them, you have to answer a basic question. Why should you buy my product? Too many marketers only focus on conveying the basic benefits of the product, which is great, but it doesn't differentiate you because those benefits are usually benefits that somebody else can claim. You know, most of the benefits boil down to saving you time and money and effort and so forth. So you need to not only say why your product is good, but why your product is different. And then the third piece of it is, you need to have a simple, compelling message. So after you've figured out, you know, kind of your architecture and your major benefits and your differentiation, I'll underline that, you need a way to communicate it in a simple, simple memorable way. Um, usually, you know, if you can have three words or short phrases, that's the best way to do it. And I'm gonna give you a great example that shows you how old I am. But back in the <laughs> early days of relational databases, Oracle's entire value proposition was expressed in three words, compatibility, connectability, portability. And if if you were as a potential buyer, if you understood those three concepts and you wanted those three capabilities, you couldn't get all three from anybody else. And obviously Oracle rolled over the competition in the uh, relational database market. You know, 40 years later, I can still remember those phrases, right? So that's great messaging. Now, once you've done all those three things, Tom, and and that's the conceptual part of defining your message, there's a fourth piece, which actually I'll also say a lot of people forget to do well. You have to maniacally state that messaging everywhere. You have to really be thorough about making sure that it's expressed the same way on your website, your sales presos, your press releases, everywhere. And it's hard to do this. It's a lot of work and the natural tendencies for most salespeople and even people on your marketing team will be to want to do it in a way that they think is best. You know, I have my own special way I like to say mm-hmm. this. Well, that doesn't cut it because if you let everybody do that, you don't have a consistent message. And if you want to break through in the market, everyone has to sing from the same songbook. And you know, only then will your collective voice be heard. I think there's a couple of lessons in there. One lesson is, 
I think we we have a lot of recency bias as marketers, and we look to some of the recent success stories, companies that have IPO'd recently, like Snowflake or Sumo Logic, and, and look at them as the sort of golden standard for marketing. But Oracle is a great example. We underestimate how great Oracle was at marketing, how great Larry Ellison was as a marketer. And you can definitely remember, I can remember Oracle glossy ads with, you know, big old hardware and just, you know, laying out Oracle versus their competitor and why Oracle was 100x better. A claim that everyone knew was made up in BS, but I, I got to imagine they sold a lot of databases and hardware through that approach, right? Oh, yeah. And they, you know, they took a complex world. I mean, back then, relational databases were a new concept. It was a, you know, very abstract kind of thing. And it was a, it was a, it was a difficult sell over some of the more established, you know, database structures. And they took a complex thing and boiled it down into some very simple concepts. And they just hammered those concepts home. And every Oracle ad looked the same way. It was always a white background with red lettering. You know, you could always recognize it. And, you know, I think sometimes marketers try to be too creative and come up with different ways of thing, of uh, saying things and doing things. To get a message out in the market, you've got to hammer the same message, the same brand identity over and over again for, you know, a year or more easily. It's like, you know, um, teaching a grade school. You're going to do this over and over again until you get it right. You got to just keep doing it over and over again. You give me the chills right now because that's exactly... Like I, I think I once wrote like by the time marketing gets bored of a message is just about when sales is starting to understand it. <laughs> by the time sales gets bored of a message is just about when customers are starting to understand it. And by the time customers get bored is when you should maybe think in a few years about trying something different. Like we love, and I'm, I'm so guilty of doing this in my career. We move on from message quarter to quarter. And how do you expect a customer to understand your true value prop and differentiation when every quarter it looks different to them. And, and I think of the historically great companies, it's always been basically the same. Maybe the words have changed, but the idea has basically been the same. Yeah, and Tom, that's a great, I love your little story about when sales gets bored when market. It's so true. And it's so, you know, marketing people by, by their nature are creative people and they want to create new things. So the tendency is to want to always recreate, recreate. <laughs> I always thought when you built a messaging platform, you have to run it at least 18 months. Now you got to tune it around the edges and you can't just stick with where you are forever, but you got to pick something that you feel committed to. And everybody has to do it. This, again, this is the hard part. The CEO has to live that messaging. You know, it doesn't work if the marketing team comes up with a you know yeah. a message that the company agrees to and then the next all hands meeting the ceo talks about the offering differently yeah the CEO has to everybody has to line up and that's and i think another important part of this is the messaging should not be the marketing message it's the company message yes. and it should be formulated through a combination of marketing people sales people people the ceo it's a collaborative effort. You all agree to it. You sign a blood. This is going to be our message. And then you run with it for at least 18 months. Yeah. And I think it's it's then done that way. The message also becomes the corporate strategy and not the marketing strategy because then the message 
that comes from the top guides, you know, how sales sales thinks about it, how customer success thinks about it. I, I mean, that, that's really the only way to do it. You're totally right. And we're we're actually at a messaging project at my company right now, Recorded Future. And and we're we're making sure that there's buy-in from the top because otherwise it's just a waste of time, to be Absolutely. honest, right? I, and I used I used to grind my teeth when people would say uh, something about your message or the marketing message. And I would uh, say, well, no, it's our message. We put this together collectively. You, you know, you have to have the sales team bought in because if the sales VP doesn't buy in and he lets the sales team kind of do whatever I want and give their own presentation. I mean, this happens all the time. You go to, you walk around the sales team and different salespeople are each using a little different presentation well, the only way you should customize the presentation if it's if it's for the particular needs of that prospect, yeah. you don't customize it in terms of expressing your value proposition. It's not your it's not your right as a salesperson to come up with your own unique message. You're obligated. You should be obligated to express the corporate message as part of a collective voice. Yeah, and I you know I was an SE for for a lot of my career, and I was super guilty of that. I would take the marketing deck, you know, I was out there pitching four or five times a week as an SE and I would I would try to put my own spin on and I'm actually going to interview the guy who was delivering all this message and I'm going to apologize to him for uh for subverting all of the work that he did, but I didn't know any better and I didn't realize and now I seeing it from my side how damaging that is when you got a bunch of when you got a bunch of SEs or reps out there telling a story that's not consistent, it works against the company. And I'll share, I worked at a company called Autonomy for a little bit. And uh, Autonomy was known for lots of things. Most of them are, some of them criminal, but a lot of, uh, Autonomy was really good at marketing and messaging. And they used to certify us on it. And not like a you know, like a sort of casual, let's have some fun certification. There was somebody at autonomy where as a new hire, you would have to pass this person. And if you're a customer facing, you would have to pass the test. Uh, I think the guy's name was Bob. And and if you had to go present the message to Bob and Bob would Simon Cowell-esque pick apart everything you did wrong in telling this, the autonomy story. And we it created a culture where you know, and you didn't get, by the way, if you failed this test, you couldn't get paid commission. So it was a serious, you know, it was a serious hurdle to cross, but it seemed pretty draconian. But in retrospect, everybody at Tom, which is a big company, a couple thousand people was telling the story consistently. I, I love That's something it. we think we should do. Absolutely. I, I, um, I love that. I love Bob. Uh, you know, <laughs> I've also seen, I worked at a company once where the message was completely, um, you know, fragmented and, um, I was tasked with putting together a new message and I worked with the team and we, we, we constructed this message platform that everybody liked. The CEO told the sales team, I'm gonna be traveling around office to office. I'm gonna randomly grab people in the office. I'm gonna ask you, you know, within 10 minutes to give me your sales presentation. If you're fumbling and stumbling with your materials and you're not prepared, I know that you don't have the right thing ready. And if you don't deliver the message that I know was crafted as part of a corporate effort, you know, I, I will reserve the right to fire you if, if need be. He also ran a corporate-wide contest. I like this the best, actually. He ran a contest for the person to deliver the message the best. And there were local and regional, you know, 
uh, presentations where people battled for, you know, to get sent up to corporate. And, and then like eight guys came to corporate and we watched them all present. We picked the best guy and he got some big reward. So there's the carrot and the stick. But either way, you know, if you don't have everybody saying the same message, you don't have a message. Yes. Because in today's market, you've got to really work hard to break through. And you can't have a bunch of little voices each saying their own thing. It has to be consistent. I think we just found the title of this podcast. So thank you for that. So by the way, the marketeers are guilty of this too, Tom, you know, marketing people love to be creative and come up with their new thing. But I think it's really essential when you build a messaging strategy that you create something we used to call it a core message platform. Yeah. It's just a document and a sales presentation, but in it, it has the 15 word, the 40 word, the 30 word, the hundred word description of your company. And, you know, you, you tell your team whenever, you're asked to describe the company, you just cut and paste. You don't craft something new and different. And you put a lot of work into making those messages consistent and people have to do them. And it's, it's hard work. What, it's one of the job of a CMO is to make sure everybody is doing the right thing consistently. Yeah, and you know, I'm, I have a new version of that sitting in my inbox right now. I've done a pretty poor job of that, to be honest with you. Like we need... We're big enough now at Recorded Future. We need a much more formalized messaging platform. We also need something that that you know takes us from being you know we're over hundred million dollars at this point, and, and we want to be much bigger. Like I think it's a good time for us to be doing a new messaging platform that's ultimately not all that new. To your point, I, I think messaging. But at this point, we want to create something that we can live with, you know, to to a billion dollars in revenue and beyond. I I don't want to be that company. Every time you come to our website, you, you see something different. Right. Um, and and that's that's a hard mentality. Moves why it has to be great. So right. And you know, it's it codifying it is really quite straightforward. I mean, the act of producing the message is a lot of hard work. But the, but once you've got it, I think you only have to capture it in two simple vehicles. A sales presentation is the most important because nobody wants to read a long document. So a sales presentation with key graphics and, you know, of course, solid messaging is the best way to come to an agreement that this is our message. And then you have a written document that captures your market texture and your key graphical concepts, the key messaging. You, you grind out all the specifics of the words and how you want to say the opening sentence of, in your press releases, all that sort of stuff. And then you lock that in and you make sure every marketer has their own, has that on their digital desk and you just put it out everywhere. And when you redo your messaging, it's a gargantuan effort to do an inventory of everything that needs to be changed and by when. Because you got a bunch of old stuff out there and you got to get rid of that stuff. Uh, and it's hard work, but you got to do it. We're in the middle of that right now, Recorded Future. And, and another email that will go out today or tomorrow is, you know, we, we've we've moved to a new visual identity. We're, we're working on a new messaging block like you talked about. But we've got to declare the old stuff being just gone. And yeah. we're going we're gonna to send that email declaring it. And we're going to say, if you're still using any of the old stuff, we'll give you some amnesty and reach out to us and we'll help you. But we just can't, we, we, we've got to make that switch. And it's hard when you got a team of, you know, over 500 people, you know, it's, it's, that's a hard, it's a hard, you know, you can't just flip the switch. It takes a long time. And 
when you do a message, messaging relaunch, you need some really organized um, project manager in marketing to do a, com a complete inventory and a plan for what's going to be changed when. And on the day of launch, you need some, you need the most important things completely done. The website, the sales preso, some basic collateral, sales training, that kind of stuff. And it will take you months to weed everything else out, but you've got to do it. Otherwise, you just have little pieces of cancer out there that erode your main message. Oh, yeah, that's exactly, exactly it. So another question I have for you. So your background, a lot like mine, is marketing technical products. You worked at Rational, Software Development, CompuWare, most recently at Carbon Black. And I've always felt that product marketing to technologists, to developers, CIOs, people that'll just see through superlatives and, and see through adjectives, I've always felt that super hard compared to like product marketing for other marketers. It's like marketing for ourselves. If I like it, chances are my, you know, my peers are going to like it. What's it, what do you think it takes to be a success, to do successful product marketing when you're selling to, to technologists, whether it's CIO or CISO or whatever? You know, I think one of the hard things about, about product marketing in messaging and positioning in general in the high-tech software space is you're marketing a very abstract thing. You know, think about a piece of software. You can't touch it. You can only see it through a little bit of the user interface. You can't feel it or smell. You know, it's not a physical object. Like if I'm marketing you a chair, I can just show you the chair. There's not much of a debate about what the chair is. But when you're marketing a software product, there's a lot of debate about what it is and what it does and what it's good at and what you should talk about. So it's a very, it's a complicated, tricky thing. I think hiring a product marketing person is the hardest position to hire in marketing because the best ones have a combination of good product knowledge, marketing creativity, and excellent communication skills. Now, right there, that weeds <laughs> out a lot of people, right? Because these people have to understand your product's features and functions. They have to understand the buyer's needs and pain points. They have to also understand the competition. The person needs to have what I'll call some technical acumen. I don't mean they write C++ or Python code, but they need to be able to go deep with a product manager or engineer and challenge them on what the product really does and why it matters. You know, they need to be a product person. I think one of the best product marketing people, one of the best places to find them is what you said about your background, Tom, is an SE. Yes. An SE is a person who has a product skill set. And now, when you, so now you need to find an SE or somebody like that that really understands the product. Then they need great marketing communication skills, both written and verbal, to communicate that. And the verbal, the verbal part's really important because they'll oftentimes present to the sales team, talk to analysts, get involved in the deal, that sort of thing. So I think hiring product marketing people, I always thought it was the hardest position to hire. A hundred percent agreed. Because what you just described is every product marketer needs to be a, a mini CMO of, of whatever it is they own, whether it's a product, a product line, a module, whatever you call it. You know, you've described they need to be able to understand the product, the context the product lives in, competitors, differentiation, USP, ICP, all the things that we ask. And so, my I've always sort of thought of product marketers as the CMO of their markets. And I've always thought that product marketers need to take a, a pretty strong role in leading the go-to-market 
Absolutely. And one of the the signals I always saw as a product marketer, at least, and maybe it's because I was an SE, so this was natural, but I, I see a really strong signal of success when reps pull product marketers in a deal. I'm so, I'm so happy with the positioning you've given me and the, the tools you've equipped me with that I think you can deliver this even better than I can as a rep. I always wanted to be pulled into deals. And I was a product marketer, most recently back at Acquia, like I loved when sales reps reached out to me and said, hey, let's go win this together. Oh, that's really fantastic. And kudos for you if people do that, because I think the more natural place for sales to reach out is to product management. But reaching out to product marketing is great. And, and I'll add something, too, about the scope of a product marketer. Uh, at Carbon Black, we actually had our product marketers think of it as they're running their own little business. You know, So a product yes. marketer typically owns a product or a, maybe a set of products. We would have that product marketer feel a responsibility for the revenue for their product, for the leads for their product. So they would be responsible in our quarterly planning sessions to work with the demand gen team to say, we think we can generate this many leads for this product in this quarter. And then the product marketer would be on the hook for that as much as the demand gen team would be, because we wanted both sides to feel an ownership about generating that lead flow and ultimately converting it into revenue. So they need to also be a little bit of a business manager as well as, you know, a product marketer. Yeah. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Eric. That is, I'm going to cut that part out of this podcast before I publish, because that is literally the model we're moving towards at Recorded Future. One of the big transformations we made this year as a company is we 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 sort of took our our platform and broke it up into six pieces that we call modules and we've got product marketers who are responsible for, you know, driving, you know, driving the go-to-market for each of these these modules, and and it's like we went from being a hundred million dollar plus product to now having six startups within a hundred million dollar plus company. And I've asked each of the product marketers to really to play the role that you described. You know, if you were product marketing a six million dollar business, what do you need to do to turn it into a twelve million dollar business? I love it. I love it. And it. Tom, some product marketers will love that and some will not like it because, you know, some will say, gee, this is great. I'm sort of almost the CEO of a little, you know, that kind of a thing. Other ones will say, hey, wait a minute. I, I'm really about messaging and positioning and packaging. And I don't really want to get involved in lead gen. And, you know, I don't want to be held accountable for those things. So some people will gravitate and some will will resist a little bit. So... Yes. Yes. Good advice. And uh, I'll let you know how it goes. I'll follow back up with you because it's a transformation we're, we're going to work on here and I'm sure it'll be successful. And uh, I think it's the, you know, the other side of it, it's such a great opportunity as a product marketer, you know, working towards a CMO career path, what better way to work up that path than to be able to demonstrate that you own and drove your market, you know, turn that $3 million product into six and six into 12 and 12 into 24. Next thing you know, you know, you're sitting in, you know, sitting in your seat someday. And you wonder why you've done it. <laughs> um, you know, Tom, I agree with that because, you know, a good CMO must understand product marketing, messaging, positioning, all that, and also the demand gen side of things. Yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah, so, yeah. so becoming getting your foot in there as a product marketer is an important step towards being a CMO. And as I tell my team, they don't need to be specialists in a channel. They don't, the product marketers don't need to know that, you know, a good a good cost per lead model for this channel is this. Like we have teams to go do that. What they need to be good is the strategy. 
you know, what are we yeah. saying? Why are we saying it? Who are we saying it to? Other people on the team will figure out the best way to execute. So that's right. They need to have a, an umbrella view of things. Um, I agree with you. I won't restate it. I agree. So let's talk a little bit about sales. So you have this, you're this one of the, the rarest of rare marketing executives who's actually run a sales team before. But I pulled another LinkedIn quote uh, about you that I thought would sort of set the context for this. And it says, anybody's ever worked in a sales capacity from rep to sales manager can appreciate when they're aligned with a solid marketing vision and strategy. In my three years working at Compuer Gomez, I was quick to realize Eric Sher was the best ally a sales team could have. His programs and vision increased lead gen and brand awareness exponentially. He's got a great understanding of the challenges a sales team can face. But best of all, he actually listens to what the sales has to say and respects their input. So as, a, as someone who's run sales and marketing together, what's your take on what, what a, a healthy, aligned sales and marketing organization looks like? Well, it looks like almost one organization. I mean, it looks like two teams working together, right? Uh, look, I've always thought that, uh, I've always hated it when you go into a company and marketing sales don't get along. You know, sales mm-hmm. says marketing wouldn't know a customer if it walked into one. And marketing says, you know, sales never understands what we do and doesn't pay attention. And they just fight. And it's like, this is ridiculous because I always think marketing sales are two sides of the same coin. And that coin is called revenue. So a marketing person needs to say to themselves, everything I do needs to be about ultimately generating revenue. Now, I say ultimately because there's a lead time in marketing efforts where you do something that doesn't produce revenue tomorrow. So it's not like sales teams that are focused on closing deals right now. But you got to say to yourself, everything I'm doing here needs to be oriented towards generating revenue. Well, what does that mean? It means you got to work with a sales team because the sales team is a part of the company that keeps the lights on. So I would always remind the marketing team that the sales team is our customer. That means we need to both lead them in some areas, but we need to listen to them and help them as much as possible. And that means marketing sales needs to have interlocks at every level and a variety of different review points. Let me tell you what I mean by that. The CMO should meet regularly with the head of sales just to stay in touch. How are things going? What are you hearing? What's working? What's not working? The demand gen manager, you know, everybody under the CMO or many people under the CMO will have a counterpart on the sales team. Like the demand gen manager uh, leader probably has an inside sales team leader. Yeah. All those leads. They should meet on a regular basis just to keep the communication alive. Sometimes the meeting, you don't really know what you're going to talk about. You get into it, and all of a sudden, the hour is over. <laughs> you also need to have regular you know, review and planning sessions in marketing, and you should invite your sales counterparts in for those sessions. So we would have quarterly marketing reviews where we would review what happened in the last quarter and set the ground for, for what's happening in the next quarter. And we would invite sales to both listen in to what we were planning, as well as to we would, you know, we would twist sales arms to say, you need to present to us about what you're thinking, what works yeah. and what doesn't work. And the sales team, they love the idea of having a voice, but they're not all that great about sitting down and formulating their thoughts and putting a presentation together. But that was important because it forced them to formulate their thoughts. Um, another thing we did at Carbon Black is once, uh, you know, once a month or whatever, we would buy lunch 
for different parts of the telesales team. And we would invite different pieces of the marketing department to that lunch. And it was just about, let's just talk. You know, you don't have to have presentations or anything. It's just about, what are you guys hearing? What's going on out there? And if nothing more, it just built a collaboration between the two teams. I'll add one more thing. I always thought it was important to remind the CEO that sales and marketing must be commonly aligned. And you know, if you've got a CEO that tries to sort of you know, push the teams apart, that's not a good thing. You need, the CEO needs to remember that these two pieces have to work in synchrony. And if they're not working in synchrony, part of it is the CEO's job to help you know, get the leaders aligned. Yeah. And uh, that was one of the things about Recorded Future when I joined. And, and I know we both know Scott Todaro, the former uh, head of marketing here, and he was super passionate about sales and marketing alignment and built, really did a great job of building a relationship that endures uh, still at Recorded Future, where there's never, I've never been, for the first time in my career, I've never been in that meeting where the head of sales just looks over and says, you know, the leads are weak, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross style, or need more <laughs> leads. And there's never finger pointing. It's just when we run into challenges, it's how do we go tackle those challenges together? So it's, right. uh, I think it's easier to do if you're marketing at a smaller startup or something, do it early because it's hard to fix it when you get big. Oh yeah. And, and uh, if it's broken, when you get big, that's when you start to see CMOs get fired. Yeah. Tom, there's another thing I'll add to that too. Almost every sales team does a QBR, you know, quarterly business review. Um, and sometimes it's, uh, you know, local and in, in local field teams. And sometimes it's in headquarters with like the uh, inside sales team. Well, it's important that the sales team allow marketing to sit in on it. Yeah. So we would take various people from the marketing team and we would say, you go on, you go to this meeting, you go to that meeting. Now your job when you go to that meeting is to both represent marketing and talk about what you know that we're doing, but also document what you're hearing from the sales team. What's working, what's not, what competition is rising, which is falling, what features of the product are, are you know, resonating, which ones aren't. And then you must document that and bring that back and share it with the rest of the marketing team. You know, You can't just benefit in your own little way by going to the meeting. You've got to give it back to everybody else. Yeah. Uh, and it's just important to show sales, we're on your team. By the way, if sales and marketing don't get along, guess who wins? Sales always <laughs> wins, right? A hundred percent of the time. And as they should, they're carrying the number. Like that's, that's that, right. they've earned that right. That's right. So if, uh, if you're a CMO and you're not uh, building a culture of alignment with sales and working with sales. Now, by the way, Tom, this doesn't mean you roll over and do whatever sales wants. Because lots of times salespeople don't know what they want. They just express their pain points and their like a customer. Lots of customers don't know what they want. They just know that things aren't right and they want something different. Yes. So uh, you don't just do whatever sales says, but you listen to what they say and then formulate a solution that will help them through their problems. I think if you listen to what they say, you can get some short-term wins, but at the expense of next quarter or the quarter out or next year, you've probably made decisions that were too short-term focused. Like the trade-off between, you know, one of the mistakes I, I, I remember making is just the like, 
being so hyper-focused on next quarter. Like a rep has to hit their number this month, this quarter, this year. Marketing can't take just that view. Like I have to be thinking three years from now, what does recorded future look like? If you over-rotate, and I over-rotated when I was CMO over at Acquia, I was so hyper-focused on the next six months that I didn't focus enough on long-term things like brand building that would have actually mm-hmm. delivered much better output to the company had I been more thoughtful. So I think it's that it is that sort of trade-off of, you know, listen to sales, make sure you're focused on the short term, but do not do it at the expense of long term. Yeah, it's really it's it's a great point, Tom. And a good CMO and frankly a good marketer in general learns to sort out what what ideas should I throw away? What ideas can I implement in the short term that will make a benefit, but have but also play into the third important category, which is what's the long-term view? Yeah. And, and that's, yeah, you, 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 sorting through those things is critical. All right. So speaking of things we can throw away, uh, I want to talk a little bit about marketing in, in uh, cybersecurity. So you, uh, you were the team of Bit9 and then who became Carbon Black, one of uh, Boston's great success stories. Uh, I, think, I think that was your first and only role in cybersecurity, right? I dabbled a little bit in a previous company, but it was the it was the place I it was the only time I spent a full time number of years in cybersecurity. Yes, I found cybersecurity to be a unique challenge as a marketer for lots of different reasons. It's I've sold to developers and CIOs, and even though you know often cybersecurity lives underneath the CIO, it still feels like a vastly different world to me. The language is different. I had to learn a whole bunch of new acronyms. I had no idea what they meant. What was your experience like when you when you joined Bit9 on sort of just learning, you know, the cybersecurity world? Well, I agree with you, Tom. It is kind of a different world. And it's probably tougher for you because you did it more recently and the market is bigger and more complicated and more evolved than when I did it. You know, I did it, I did it around when the dinosaurs were roaming. So cybersecurity wasn't quite <laughs> as <you know. laughs> um look, I loved it. And uh I think it was easier for me because I had some really spectacular guys in the company that helped me through that. A guy named Brian Hazard, who's now the CMO at Randori, he was in charge of product management. He's incredible. He knew the market. He knew our product. He knew the customer. He's a great communicator. He really, really helped me a lot. Harry Sverdlov uh, was the CTO at Carbon Black, and I've worked with Harry before, and he's, we have a really strong resonance and connection. He's a brilliant guy, and he taught me a lot. And then I'm our CEO, uh, Patrick Morley, I have a long relationship with Patrick and he also helped me understand it quickly. So I think it's really important when you do step into cybersecurity, you got to act like a sponge. You got you to do everything you can, talk to as many people as you can, read whatever you can, get your head around it. It is a different world, but it's a great world. I mean, it's a world yeah. that's going to be here to stay for a long time. Um, and, and the cool thing about it is when you help people solve their security issues, you really are helping them keep their company, you know, healthy and solid and safe. It's a nice feeling. It's much, yeah. It's much more of a community. There's there's a lot less of a competitive vibe here between, you know, all the companies in the security market. I think it's, I think everybody sees that our job is to, to pr- help protect our customers, our governments against, you know, the adversaries. And there's a little bit of a kumbaya, we work together part of it. You know, I'm, I'm used to the the Oracle, Larry Ellison, Salesforce were aggressive against, you know, depositioning competitors. And, and that doesn't really happen in, in cybersecurity. 
Not as much. I agree with you. And it also is true that companies who are competing in the market, I mean, I'm talking about your buyers, right? Companies that are competing in the market will collaborate together on the cybersecurity aspect. You know, they would never collaborate. You'd never find Coke and Pepsi collaborating with each other on their, you know, on their products, right? But they will collaborate on the cybersecurity thing because, as you said, it really is about the good guys versus the bad guys. Yeah. We all want to collectively stop the bad guys. Now, the one of the tricky and hard parts about cybersecurity is nobody wants to say whose product they use. <laughs> <Because nobody wants laughs> Don't, to say Eric. I'm gonna I'm gonna scrub that part out of here. I can't. <laughs> I literally had an email chain yesterday saying how, you know, effectively. I don't want to hear any excuses. We got to get some customer logos, but it is super difficult. You're exactly right. Well, nobody wants to reveal their defenses. So yeah. So that that's the hard part. That's one of the hard parts about cybersecurity. Uh well. No, I know it's, um, you know, I want to do, we were reviewing, speaking of old campaigns. And again, I think there's so much to learn from studying, not startups of the day or the moment, but like SAP, SAP had this iconic runs on SAP campaign, Nike runs on SAP, all these great companies run on SAP. And, you know, I I would love to have our version of a runs on SAP campaign, but to do that, you got to get iconic brands and, uh, it is definitely harder to do, but we are, we are actively working on it and it's one of our okrs for q4 um yeah Yeah. i was gonna say you know on the give up topic like you got to give stuff up the thing that we've given up here sort of forced by covid is trade shows one of the things i learned about about you know i've done trade shows before i've spent you know a couple hundred thousand dollars you know for medium presences at medium-sized shows but you go into cybersecurity and all of a sudden, you know, you got to participate in RSA and in Black Hat, and you can't just show up at these places. You're you're coming in there with a big, big mid six mid six figure minimum budget, and all of a sudden those went away. So, I got two questions for you. You know, what do you think about the sort of, you know, the the events in cybersecurity and and maybe your experience there, but also, like, what's going to happen with events going forward? Like especially in an industry like cybersecurity, so reliant on a couple of these big events like RSA and Black Hat. What happened? What happens? If they never go back to their previous in-person glory. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's kind of like predicting the stock market. You know, it's a little hard to know how this is going to go. But I personally think that uh, the world will go back to in-person contact as soon as it can because humans we just want in-person contact, right? I mean, talking to somebody in person is always more productive than talking to them over the phone or a Zoom call. Now, you know, the phone and Zoom call can work great, but there's a level of interaction and communication that you can't replace um, that that comes from an in-person communication. Now, I I always thought it was absurd the amount of money companies spent on booths at RSA. I mean, million dollar, like uh, it's all, it's not really going to generate leads commensurate with the investment. It's just about trying to look big and, and powerful. Exactly. And it was always tough as a CMO because, you know, board members would walk around and say, hey, we need a bigger booth. And we'd say, great, well, we need more budget. Well, I'll talk to the CEO about that. And, you know, everybody wants more, but nobody wants to give you more money to do it. But um, I think we're going to go back to some um, form of in-person contact. It may not be quite the rock and roll um, mega booths of, of yesteryear, 
But, but I bet you in five or 10 years, you know, it, it all comes back to that. Gift. Yeah. And that's a fair point, right? There's it's again, we've, we've learned time. And like, there's no, there's no things don't just, they were good ideas for a reason and they will, but I think it's, it's actually created a little bit of a reprieve because now we don't have that pressure the board members aren't saying, why don't you have the $2 million booth at RSA when our competitor does? It creates a little, it sort of leveled the playing field in some ways. And with all that marketing budget that we now save, it's requiring CMOs and cybersecurity to think creatively about, you know, what do you do to grow? And we've been, you know, we started a media site at Recorded Future called The Record by Recorded Future. You know, we hired a journalist to go out there and write well-researched articles on sort of these untold stories of cybersecurity and, and we're early into this journey, but, you know, we're going to wake up with a, a media property that's going to rival, you know, some of the, the dedicated news sites you see. And, and that's, that's an investment that we probably only could have made because some of these big physical events were going away. I love it, Tom. I love the idea of redirecting those in-person big expensive booth funds to something um, to a different area. A lot, a lot less expensive. All right. I got one last question for you and thanks for everything so far. It's been great. You know, one of the things that I've heard a lot about you as a person is you've been a great mentor to a lot of the the marketers in the Boston area. You know, it's something I've, I've tried to do. I try to stay close to people who've worked for me and try to help them out. Um, I feel like it's part of my, uh, you know, my responsibility um, in the role I'm in. And this is something you've done in a huge way you know, how, how have you, what's, what's that been like for you? And, you know, where do you find the time and, and how do you, how do you say no? And, and just tell me a little bit about that. Well, I find the time mostly because I'm not in full-time operational roles anymore. So I have a lot more time to do it than you do or people that are working full-time. I mean, I'm not trying to build my career anymore. All I really want to do is help people. I just love helping people. And um, I think the CMO job might be the hardest job in the company because everybody has an opinion in what you do. You know, the website, the logo, your brand identity, you name it. Everybody's an expert in marketing, right? And other parts of the company, people don't have the technical details or the interest to dig into things like engineering or finance, but they sure have an opinion to say about marketing. So the CMO gets hit from all sides. And the CMO has nobody to talk to because most of the rest of the company doesn't know anything about marketing. So I really like doing coaching and mentoring work for CMOs. Um, and I'm amazed that every time they ask me a question, I've seen it, you know, two or three times at a couple of different companies. And I can just guide them through what worked and what didn't. And they have to make sure that that fits into the current world. But as you and I have talked about, Tom, you know, a lot of things are new. A lot of things are just new labels on old ideas most of the same stuff about organizational issues and interactions with sales and those things, they live on and on and on, right? And so I love helping people through those issues, uh, you know, kind of being a sounding board and a shoulder to cry on as kind of a, fair, a marketing therapist for the CMOs. <laughs> I, I really love it. And there's nothing better than having an hour long conversation and at the end of it, having somebody say, wow, you helped me so much. That's just, you know, to me, that's, that's what it's all about. Well, I think you sneakily just did that for me in this uh, this podcast conversation. So I don't know if that was how we thought it was going to be. And I didn't cry, at least not out, not visibly. I definitely cried inside a few times, especially 
when you talked about just the need to be relentless with messaging, that made me cry inside because I know I'm not doing a good enough job of that. <laughs> but, well, you know, tears of, a, tears of a clown, Tom. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, uh, I think, I think we need more of that. And I think it is something that, that all of us who are lucky enough to be where we are and have, have learned a lot of lessons the hard way and can help people avoid all the mistakes that we've made over the years. I think it is good that people like you are out there doing what you do. So, you know, on, on behalf of everybody that you've helped out, I do thank you for all that hard work you've done. So Eric, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. And uh, let's, let's, let's hope that we've reached a whole bunch of other marketers uh, through this hour long therapy session. <laughs>